Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I have two of my favorite space guests on my show because um, we're going to learn. Hopefully, well, I'm probably going to learn. You guys are probably just going to talk and be able to know what you guys are saying. Bunch of technical lingo, and then I'm just going to be like nodding my head like I understand. But um, I had a couple of questions based on my conversations. Hey, sec, I've known you over the years. And then, Andrea, you're kind of new to um, my show and everything. This is your second time on. But with the idea that comes into space exploration, not only with colonization and space civilizations as well, too, but the idea of being able to find out what else is out in the galaxy. Now, I do a lot of UAP episodes, this UFO. I've talked to Massimo Teodorani, who is a astronomer, and um, he's part of the Galileo Research Project. And we got into lightning ball phenomena and then plasma research as well, too, which has me open into this whole new area where I'm like, how much do we know about space? And how much are we going to know in the next couple of years? And I start wondering, and I think it, I'm not to get down into the climate topic, but Haystick, even with the observatory research as well, too, you are limited on the capacity of where these locations are based on light pollution. So in a sense, that might hinder some of our progress of understanding more about space because of what we can see through our atmosphere. So I go to a point where if we're learning about dark matter, we're now discovering that that's real. We're learning about other things. I mean, there's a possibility of wormholes out there as well, too. I understand that we're limited in Earth's atmosphere. What about the idea of an observatory on like, I know it sounds crazy, but on like the moon or on one of these types of maybe planets? I know that seems like a long haul, but I honestly put more weight into human expansion a little bit more. Like people can say, oh, that'll be a 50 years or a hundred years. And I'm like, we might get there a little bit faster if more resources are shoved into it. And then I start opening up the door, which is the main question is, if we did put an observatory or we did put a telescope or something on one of these outer, I guess, off earth, I would say, would our progress in space exploration increase by like tenfold if you don't have to worry about so much light pollution? Um, yes, I think uh, Haystack is probably the expert on this on uh, telescope, radio telescopes. Actually, it's not a crazy idea at all. It has been proposed actually so you're uh, you could consider yourself a bona fide uh, astronomer um it's just a, a few years ago it's been proposed to put a radio telescope on the moon and there's various uh actually on the dark side of the moon um and technically it's not the dark side is the far side of the moon which is uh, we cannot see uh but the, the far side of the moon is perfect for uh, observations of the universe in in radio 
uh, waves, just for the reason that you, you mentioned, um, light pollution, but also, uh, well, not so much light pollution, but, you know, Earth atmosphere, but also any noises and in radio interference. We are very chatty species, so we, we chat via radio waves a lot. So um, there's only a few places on Earth we can put radio telescopes, and South Africa is one, um, the, the desert in, um, uh, in Australia and in some some very remote places on the earth where there's very little radio communication and also the the atmosphere is uh, it's good for radio observations but the moon actually is gonna give us like you say a tenfold or manifold uh, opportunities to to observe the universe and um, one of the uh, targets would be to observe the early universe so right at the beginning of the universe there this this epoch which we call the dark ages is because not much is going on there there's not there's no star formation but there's a lot of um, there's still gas hydrogen gas which uh, inhabits the universe at that at that point and would emit um, radiation in, in particular in the radio waves and um, a telescope on the far side of the moon would be ideal to to observe that maybe haystack would have something to add on to this yes <laughs> so one thing is it's correct. There is a proposal to put a telescope on a moon. So if you think about our normal optical telescopes, we observe the night sky with. The two most contributing factors is one, light pollution. So you want the telescope as far away from cities as possible, so you have less light pollution. And then secondly, you need to place an optical telescope at a place where the atmosphere is as stable as possible. So for the atmosphere to be stable, is it needs to be at dry places and at very cold places. So if the atmosphere is cold, the atmosphere is more stable. And if it's dry, that means less water vapor in the atmosphere. You also have very good viewing possibilities. So that's why to get away from these issues, that's why these optical telescopes is usually built in deserts or on top of mountain ranges, so you can get above the water level and the atmosphere. There's a few interesting techniques that can help these telescopes to better observation called adaptive, op uh, ad adaptive optics that you can adjust your mirror and lens on the go to stabilize the atmosphere. And you also have active optics that is uses uh, almost less the same principle, but use those two principles to stabilize your telescope to get better observations. But in radio telescopes, you have a bit of a more a unique problem because everything causes noise. Your cell phone, Wi-Fi, even electricity causes noises. So you want your radio telescopes at places where you have the least amount of interference. So they will be usually built in valleys or in places where there's no civilization at all. And then your the next thing is your telescope's also important what is designed to observe. So usually you want to observe as much as possible with your telescope, but your telescope is also developed to observe certain objects in mind. So for example, if you wanna observe black holes, the only way we can do it is by looking at the X-rays on the accretion disk around those black holes. So that means your telescope needs to be, if you think about your frequency in literal wavelengths, you have to observe at millimeter wavelengths. So that means your surface accuracy of your telescope needs to be extremely good, but also you need to be above water vapor because X-rays get 
it's dispersed in the atmosphere. So that's why there's only a few X-ray telescopes around the globe. Um, and that's why they've been using the Event Horizon Telescope to observe the images of the black holes. But if we can put a telescope on the moon, especially not at the, the dark side of the moon or the far side of the moon rather, then you have almost no light pollution if it's optical. And in radio, that's perfect because you have no interference because you are shielded from the moon from other electromagnetic radiation from emanating from Earth. So yes, that is a great place to put a telescope. And then we also have telescopes in orbit around Earth. We have Hubble, we have Spitzer, we have Chandra, and now James Webb as well. So those are better, but the ideal place would be to put a telescope on the moon. It just makes sense. It's gonna cost a lot of money, but yes, it will be the best way to observe the universe. And especially going to the dark ages, as you said, Andrea, um, just give better resolution to study the dark ages and to see where dark matter comes in and what happened in the first couple of nanoseconds and milliseconds after the Big Bang happened. Well, just for clarity for someone like myself and maybe a general public that might not know exactly what the dark ages, are we talking about a literal dark ages or are we talking about a dark age of information like lack of? information that we have compared to what we have now both um it's just because there's not much so the way we collect information from the universe is primarily via light from from stars so if the stars are not born yet there's no light coming so it's, we can't actually see through no, with normal optical telescopes we can't see it any other telescopes we have like for example x-rays as, as Haystack was measuring uh, as mentioning uh, or infrared or anything because these are wavelengths which are emitted by stars in, in different stages of their evolution or different uh, different types of stars so if there's no star stars there, you, you can't actually gather any information. But as I said, there's stuff there. You mentioned dark matter. Dark matter is present already. Unfortunately, dark matter doesn't emit or absorb any light. So we, we can't actually see directly. So we have to rely on indirect methods. So if dark matter interacts with some form of normal matter and the normal matter, normal matter bounces off some photons, for example, some radiation, then we can collect that radiation and kind of reconstruct what happened. Uh, and, um, and um, yes, but um, as I said, there's dark matter, but there's also gas. Hydrogen gas is present in the dark ages. It's just in between. It's not, it's not uh, quite next to the big, not right at the Big Bang. So a bit after the Big Bang when hydrogen already had time to form. So the, the universe had to expand and cool a bit for the protons and electrons to kind of uh, get together and form a hydrogen atom. So that happens uh, a while after the Big Bang, but that epoch is fairly long. So it's kind of a, a long period of time where it's just hydrogen gas and maybe a few stars here and there, but there's not enough light for us to connect, uh, collect with our telescopes. But the radio, so hydrogen has this unique property that when you have, you know, there's a proton and electron and you can bump uh, well, the electron has a spin, so it can change the spin from up and down. And when it does that, eventually, not all the time, but once in a while, it changes its spin, and then it emits a light. And this light happens to be in radio waves. Now, this this uh, well, it's twenty one centimeters, but that uh, that um, that light could be redshifted if the if that hydrogen atom is very very far away, <laughs> uh, and uh, the light 
it was emitted in radio, but by the time it comes to us, might might be shifted into a redder part of the spectrum. So uh, that means you start with 21 centimeters, but you 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 stretch that wavelength to longer, maybe into hundreds of centimeters, meters, or so on. Now that that's basically radio waves. Uh, there's a fairly large spectrum of radio waves, and as Hastig was mentioning, there's a relation between the wavelength of uh, that you're trying to measure and the, the the side of the dish. So the big the bigger the wavelength, the the side the bigger the dish you have to construct to collect that wavelength. Otherwise, the wavelength will. But if you have a smaller dish and a bigger wavelength, the wavelength will just pass by, and you will not be able to collect it. So, so basically, we need huge uh, dishes to to collect that that light from from the dark ages, uh, and that comes into complications. So, both on Earth and on the Moon, of course, the complications of uh, constructing a big telescope on the Moon are uh, many more than on Earth. And on Earth, you, in principle, you could uh, construct a big dish, but on the Moon, you have the added complications: how you transport that dish, how you assemble it and so on, uh, and how you correct for any, uh, any problems that you might get. You can't correct it in real time, so you need astronauts to go there and fix the telescope. So that's a, an added complication. So that, that's for the, there's lots of ideas how to build these telescopes on the moon. Uh, there's, a, there's some groups uh, in US actually, and I think they're also funded by NASA. And they are, um, they are thinking to, one of the ideas is to put a, one of these big dishes in, in, in the bottom of a crater, in a moon crater, because it's fairly stable and you can just assemble, you can send some robots to assemble this big dish over there. And um, I think that Chinese are also on, 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 the, on the chase of this and they're already starting to assemble, but they're not, uh, I think the idea is to construct Rather than having a big dish, you can put little antennas, and uh, and Haystack knows all about it. Uh, we have this technology on Earth, so it's called a um, array, a radio array. So then you you break this big that dish into lots of hundreds, or um, uh, like for example, the square kilometer array um, 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 telescope is basically a telescope on a square kilometer area on, on the earth, right? It's made of these little antennas. So that's actually better to put, uh, to construct something like that on the moon because you can send these little antennas and then you can send your robots to assemble these antennas. Or you can even make these antennas on the moon by, for example, 3D printing and so on. So there's lots of ideas. Would it be do we do would it be easier to have maybe a focus of technology to be able to construct little arrays that we could be able to launch at different uh, maybe not I wouldn't say launch it at the moon but have little specific points where it doesn't take up a huge focus of a particular area but maybe you know you could launch something at Venus you could launch something at Mercury much like we can launch a rover somewhere just to enough where if when it hits it can set up and send a signal when it does hit I mean I know we don't have that technology maybe yet but also I think that's something that could be developed in like a year or so if there was enough focus being put towards that Haystack you had a question yes uh, is it possible to do a screen share quickly a screen share yeah yes let me uh, switch that over. There you go, partner. Okay, cool. So I just want to show, share an image. So you should be able to see this image now. 
So this is what Andrea was talking about, the dark ages. So when you have your Big Bang, and here you have in uh, 400,000 uh, of the, so here we have your uh, recombination, your dark ages. So this is in billions, so 0.1 billion years. So here we have 4,000 years. So you can see the dark ages is a biggish area but if you determine it, and that is why she said, um, everything consists of the most abundant elements in the universe is helium and hydrogen. So that's where the mixture comes from so that creates. So here we can see the first stars being formed, first galaxies being formed. And that is just the timeline of uh, the Big Bang. Well, but if you go, if you go, can, if you go all the way back to the uh, well, about to say, if you go all the way back to the beginning of that graph, you see where it's like light and blue and it kind of looks like water or it looks like there's this whole area off to the left at the 0 0.1 all the way over to the 400,000. But right at that 400,000 mark, there's a whole bunch of like what looks like a, a bunch of noise going on. Is that a, the, like one of the biggest disturbance we've had? And then over time, it's just excelled and created this evolution of galaxies in a sense. So was the time it's actually better now in a sense, or we're developing more now than we were way back in the beginning. So over a long experience of time, the big bang is actually all these years later um, has actually created and caused this development to happen. So the what's let's say 2 billion years from now, depending on if our, I mean, but stars die. So wouldn't you have to worry about the fact that there would be this a growth point where we're at the 13.8 billion and then we just start to see it slowly decline would there be a decline over time or would it just keep expanding and increasing i mean we know space is expanding and increasing but i mean i don't know how much of our information on dark matter is hypothetical or is stuff we actually know i'm not saying we don't know much about dark matter but i'm also saying like i looked it up there's people that have more ideas about how much you could sell it for compared to how much i mean there's time travel linked in there as well too so i'm just wondering i understand this is a very very long time so i cannot base like off this short little thing on my laptop screen but what i'm saying is is the point that we're at now, are we just going to see, keep seeing the galaxies expand farther and become this thing that we're still going to be learning and experiencing more, maybe new things, a part of our galaxies or a part of the formation of space? Or are we slowly going to hit a peak point and then we're going to see a giant so slowly start to decline? Now it's going to be overall, maybe we're probably not even going to be around to experience it. I know we're not going to be around, but human species might not be around to be able to experience it. I'm just curious if there is this explosion this creation over a long period of time does that creation slowly start to dwindle out with the developing factor that stars also die out yeah if i can pitch in here uh, and, uh, maybe has a good uh, add more things um so that that uh, disturbance as you call it that the very thin, uh, thin sheet uh right uh 400 000 years after the big bang that's actually uh, a, a very crucial point in the evolution of the universe is um, what we call the recombination. Uh, is before that there were there was everything was plasma and matter and radiation was kind of like bundled up together, and because of that the radiation would it was not able to escape. So it's basically like a big uh, fog, a big haze, and you can't actually see anything. Uh, there is stuff going on, but unfortunately we can't probe it. So the first time we actually probe it is that at that threshold 400,000 years after the Big Bang. And uh, this was, um, these are where um, 
very important observations made by, for example, the Planck satellite and WMAP uh, satellite in space, as Hestek uh, was um, mentioning, and they saw this was we call it we call it that the, the surface of last scattering the first time when these photons were able to escape this plasma and what so the the the, the radiation is pretty smooth there's basically all around is has a constant temperature but they're in this uh constant radiation constant temperature there's some tiny fluctuations up and down so like one part in a hundred thousand uh, variations in, in temperature. So these are these little dots that you see that you see that blue and uh, yellow dots, the polka dots are these tiny variations in, in temperature. And the size from the sizes, it's a lot of information that's encoded there. So from the sizes and shapes of this of these polka dots, you can actually infer how much dark matter is in the universe, uh, the age of the universe, how much dark energy is it, how much, uh, how, how many baryons there are, whether the universe is flat or closed, and so on. And that ties into your other question: Will the universe be able to expand forever? The sea already is expanding. Will that uh, will that continue? That matter that depends on how much matter there is in a universe, both normal matter and dark matter. If there's a lot of matter and exceeds in energy uh, the, the other component of the universe, which you call dark energy, that means the universe will basically, the, the gravity will, would win, would, will win. So it's like a tug of war between gravity and this expanding energy, which we call a dark energy. If the gravity wins, the universe will recollapse at some point but all the observations that we have uh, right now, and they're pretty solid observations, seem to indicate that this dark energy overpowers gravity. So in the future, the universe will keep expanding and expanding. So if you're an astronomer in a few billion years from now, the sky would be very boring. You won't be able to see that many galaxies anymore. The stars will extinguish um, their the fuel, the hydrogen, and you'll be left with black holes and, and dark matter. And eventually the black holes will also explode. So there'll be just uh, information floating in the universe and so on. Yes. Well, besides coming, be, uh, I guess, coming across one of the biggest light shows that probably the whole entire galaxy or space of whatever you want to say would be coming across with multiple black hole explosions what about the hypothetical possibility when milky way does touch with andromeda galaxy that causing another full-on explosion which doesn't just completely turn off all the lights but completely makes a whole nother big bang or multiple big bangs i mean the interesting thing where i started getting and if you brought this point up to me when we talked about the multiverse for a brief amount of time and i actually mentioned this with haystack as well too um the possibility of being able to, when we see that graph, when you see from the 400,000s where we are now, to be able to, if we're getting to this point where we can understand dark matter a little bit more, to be able to reverse it in a sense, not necessarily create time travel, but also be able to figure out what particles were also invented in the beginning when you see all that haze or all that fog happening in there. Because I have to think, much like dark matter is like a kind of a creation of, or like this kind of like, booster i would say of the creation of a lot of things i start going well also not just dark matter but what else was incorporated when that big bang did happen has to be a factor in its evolution stages as well too that's all the gases that were included or were those created later because i mean the weird thing about when i was looking up a little bit more about dark matter is that they were saying that necessarily it has the enough energy that it could actually change the particles of a of our DNA get changed. That's where people say like superpowers and stuff like that. Now, I don't know if that's real, what I'm coming across, or if that's just some 
crazy person writing a space article or something like that. But it has me thinking a little bit more where if we start understanding the fabric of our own DNA, and if we can take the basis of what we can study, the things that I can look at right now, and I can physically touch, then we can examine that into a bigger proportion on the things that we can't necessarily see, or we can't necessarily focus. And I start wondering, and I know a lot of it's kind of hypothetical what I'm talking about, but it, it just has me thinking a little bit more and it has me kind of understanding why there's ideas about wormholes and there's ideas of this. It kind of links together with time travel in a sense, at least for me. I don't know if I'm coming across that or reading it right. Um, I said a lot. Think, do you want to pitch in? No, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> questions there. <laughs> so yes, the first thing I'm going to pitch in is just backtrack one step. <laughs> it's like I'm just backtrack one step. So one thing is to before we touch on these topics, bit on the instrumentation, like Andrea said. So when we observe the universe, we talk about the electromagnetic spectrum. The electromagnetic spectrum goes from low frequencies to very high frequencies. And in that range is our normal visible light. So I like the analogy of using a, you can think about the keys on a piano. So where your visible light you see it represents one of the keys on the piano and the rest of the keys are still part of the electromagnetic spectrum that can be observed. But frequency can be converted into wavelength. They are inversely proportional. So the higher the frequency, the lower the, the shorter the wavelength and the other way around. So if you ever think about how your microwave works, your microwaves is and literally microwaves that's eating up your food, causing them to vibrate. But if you look through your microwave, you see on the door, you can see through the door, but you can see there's a little mesh on that door. So what that actually means is the literal microwaves that's created, the wavelength or the literal size of the wave is bigger than the size of one of those holes in a grid in front of your microwave. So when the microwave hits the lid, it sees it as a solid surface because it cannot penetrate your grid. The same thing you think about if there's a basketball court and you have a chain link fence around it. If you throw the ball against a chain link fence, it will just bounce off because it basically sees it as a solid surface. The same thing happens with your microwave. And then when you observe certain objects in space, your the material you use to observe is important. So if you want to observe, for example, X-rays, that means your wavelength is millimeters in size. So that means you need a solid surface. So that's why you do certain observations. That's why it's important. So that's why I said in previously, um, you can build one giant telescope or you can build smaller telescopes and add a surface area. And that basically creates one big telescope. So now going forward to where we are now, we need better ways to observe, uh, for example, dark matter. We need to know what causes dark matter, how dark matter sits in the universe. We need to find direct ways to measure and influence dark matter. And coming now back to your point on what would happen if the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy collides. So we can actually see galaxy mergers happening here our lifetime and will happen in the future. So what will happen is the chances are very slim if the galaxy passes into one another that physical stars will eat one another. But a nucleus of those galaxies where your supermassive black holes is, 
they will merge and form an even bigger black hole. And then the structure of the galaxy will differ and you will create an entire new galaxy on their own. Take, for example, the Milky Way galaxy. We have two smaller galaxies orbiting the Milky Way called the Magellantic Clouds. So we have large Magellantic Cloud and a small Magellantic Cloud. And the Milky Way galaxy is actually cannibalizing those two galaxies, tearing off piece of their matter and stars into our own galaxy. And that is what's happening. And also thinking about the Big Bang. So like Andreas said, what will happen? Does is the dark matter, dark energy more than gravity, or will gravity win? So a nice analogy I also always tell my students: you can think about the expanding of the universe as a balloon, and you can make a cokey pin or permanent marker and make little dots on your balloon. And as it's expanding, you can just blow up your balloon. The balloon will get bigger, 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 and bigger, and all those dots will drift further and further and further and further apart from one another. Okay. Um, Andrea, did you have anything you wanted to add on to that? Because um, I'm going to end up yeah. tossing out a question out of left field. Yes. And I know it's going to throw us off. Yes, I, I know you're uh, interested in time travel by the look of it. Um, so, <laughs> as a, well, for, so as Haystack would say, we actually see galaxies merging a lot of time and they don't produce anything other than bigger galaxies and bigger black holes. And um, uh, that in itself is not enough to create a Big Bang. A Big Bang is, uh, is still a singularity like a black hole, but it's a different type of singularity. And we don't actually, we know how to create, how black holes form. So you need uh, basically a star, a massive star to form a black hole by the, the well, it explodes in a supernova or something. So that, that happens a lot in the universe, but we don't actually know how the Big Bang came to be and what was before the bank. So it's a different type of physics that you need there. So it's not like you, we actually see other uh, little big bangs happening. Now, uh, I'm not answering your question 100% honestly, because we, well, we don't actually know what's inside of black hole, right? So once if something goes into a black hole, we kind of lose any type of information, doesn't send us back any information say hey i'm in a black hole hey i'm in a different universe or anything right so that that's still a possibility uh that you know but as far as we know we have absolutely no information coming from from a from a black hole um wormholes are slightly different so actually there's two different things uh you could in principle well theoretically so not everything that's theoretically uh, imagined, it also could happen in reality. But let's let's go into the realm of imagination. You can have a black hole, and on the other side, you can have again another theoretical construction, which and in this time has not been observed, like a white hole, right? Which is exactly the opposite of a black hole. We did we do observe black holes, but we never observed a white hole. A white hole will be exactly the opposite of a, of a black hole. The matter will uh, come out of a black hole. So in principle you could create a tunnel from a black hole to a white hole. But then again, we haven't seen a black white hole and even that tunnel between those two uh, singularities, you would need to kind of keep it open. And there's no uh, way at the moment to kind of create that exotic matter or some type of energy that would keep the, 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 the bridge between a black hole and white hole. So, 
So people have thought about all these things, but they have not been observed. Wormholes, again, there are some theoretical constructions. Wormholes um, are just like uh, tears in the fabric of space-time. So if you, if you take the space-time and you can just fold it and create uh, like two holes that you can connect it through a bridge again, you, you don't actually tear the, the space-time, you just fold it so then you can connect one part of the space with another then you, in principle, you can create a wormhole. Again, they have not been observed. We don't actually know if they exist or not. Well, my interest in time travel isn't necessarily like back to the future style time travel. It's more on a, 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 I guess, in a more of a resource type idea of time travel, which is the idea of bringing back something to a previous point based on the information that was at that point. Um, I, mostly when I start learning about uh uh, comet impacts or asteroid impacts you know it comes at a time scale like dinosaurs and all these different sediment layers on top of each other and i start wondering if we can record it through that way there's got to be a way to record it through something that we don't really know a whole lot about yet now it is a very very hypothetical or kind of an imaginary scenario type deal but i start wondering i mean just with not necessarily on the idea of time travel, but if we're talking about altering cells, for instance, Now I know this is on like a, a long scale thing, but when we talk about like when Haystack pulled up the graph before and showed this point where there was what you would call plasma in this area where it seems like there's a lot of fog and it kind of links into a lot of my questions with UAPs where we start talking about like these things that people are seeing UFOs. Are they UFOs? Or are you seeing a form of plasma, much like a mirage has an effect when it's too hot outside, you end up seeing water that's officially not there. And I start wondering with plasma, are these these remnants of something that we really haven't recorded, or it might have been recorded for a while, but it's just things like little particles that are somehow getting hooked into our atmosphere. I mean, we know we have different measuring devices, we have observatories that can measure things that human eyes can't see we have devices that can measure things that we can't see it seems like they don't even exist by our human eyes because we can't pick them up but a device can pick it up so i start wondering are there a lot there's probably a lot of information that we just don't know because we don't have devices to pick these things up yet so when something does come across a rare occurrence or phenomena i would say of what these people call uaps is this necessarily something that was way 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 before that somehow has leaked its way in and it starts having me asking questions of like is could it be a possibility that it's all around us i mean there's there more things that are probably way, way older that we haven't been able to pick up or trace yet, but it's at such a faded low bar compared to the measurements that we were pulling out of like graphs like Haystack has, or these ideas of what they were when it first started. I mean, after all those billions and billions of years, I mean, it's kind of like um, you age, you know, you're young and spry. And the next thing you know, you're, you're, old you're older you don't have the same amount of energy and i start wondering if we talk about this matter of like we're all energy or something of this sort if it's this fading frequency there's probably a lot of these particles or these things like necessarily that weren't as strong as they were in the very very beginning when the big bang happened that have faded to such a point or expanded out in such a point much like the galaxy is expanding that's just causing it to spread all over the place and we might be having small minor very fragmented interactions with these things i might just be rambling at this point but 
I'm, I, I, I'm very like, I'm not interested in space or I'm not interested in the idea of time travel as a literal time travel of going back to like 1950 or something like that. I'm interested in the aspect of what information we can pull out if we were able to somehow retrieve data from a pre-point where it could actually just cause this whole other timeline where we have a whole new boost of information. So on a, on a sci-fi level jumping into this, a good example is the movie Arrival, where the aliens comes to Earth and you need to find out this linguistics professor speaking about or trying to find a new way to communicate. And in that movie is we as humans perceive time as linear. So if it's time's always moving forward, so the past, the past, the present is there and we're in the future and there's no other way to perceive time. But in that movie, the aliens doesn't perceive time as linear and they taught to humans a way to perceive time as non-linear, which is an interesting topic. But on a more practical side of it, if we look and observe objects in the universe, we're actually looking back in time. So for example, our Milky Way galaxy is 75,000 light years across. So that means the light we are seeing from the other side of our Milky Way galaxy happened 75,000 light years or 75,000 years ago. So we are seeing the light as it hits us 75,000 years ago. So the same thing, the closest star to us, Alpha Centauri, we are seeing that light as the star was 4.2 years ago. So if that star would something, let's say, for example, we have something like a death star and it blew up that star, it would take us 4.2 years before we realize that something has happened to that star. So the further we look, the further objects we observe, the further we are looking back in time. So that is, we call that the look back time. So that is one way we observe the universe. We see it as it was. So say, for example, if we look at the Andromeda galaxy and say, for example, there were dinosaurs on one of the planets we could observe and we would be observing the one of the planets in the Andromeda galaxy. If they had dinosaurs, we would see dinosaurs walking around because we would see the galaxy as they were millions of years ago and not as it is today. And this as speaking back to the sci-fi, speaking about sci-fi, time travel would be cool. It would be cool looking back in the past and seeing what happened. That opens the paradox of if you change something, will it create a new timeline? How would it influence the present? Will it create a parallel timeline stream? A good example of that is the Marvel Universe with Doctor Strange. And also, I know in the Star Trek universe, they played around a little bit with this as well. We have your main universe, the main timeline. We have the Mirror universe and the Kelvin universe. And that is interesting. And that brings me to a quote that the physicist Michikaku has said. He's, because he's a futurist as well. And he said he believes time travel is only an engineering problem now. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add a few things you, you mentioned about um, um, things changing our DNA or our cells. And there's something in there. I mean, obviously, we know about cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are like very energetic particles that uh, are coming from supernovae uh, or from the sun, for example. And we are, in, in fact, 
bombarded by this highly energetic particles all the time and we actually survive uh, we have um, on earth because we have this protective layer of our atmosphere and the magnetic field which basically deflects a lot of this high energetic cosmic rays if we had no magnetic field like for example on mars we would, we would have a much higher level of radiation and uh, as you know radiation is very damaging to human cells and tissue and you that's why for example astronauts when they go in space they have to be have wearing all the suits and not go for a very long time because there's high levels of radiation and there is we are embedded in the universe and the universe could be very violent and very energetic and it's not a very pleasant place to be without uh, without protection so uh, there's lots of things that interfere with our human tissue and also there could be damaging but it could also be uh, good because there's for example evolution on earth you need you need um, you know there's a uh, you need some changes from generation to generation in order to kind of spur that evolution and um, for example cosmic ray could damage in quote unquote uh, uh, DNA, we lost his stick. Um, his power in Africa. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, uh, a very powerful uh, particle could damage your your DNA, or not necessarily be a uh, could be a good uh, change that would spur a, a new level of evolution. So it works in both ways, both uh, for the bad and for the for the good. Uh, now, in terms of dark matter, dark matter, unfortunately, it doesn't emit uh, much light and absorb light, and uh, we, that's the reason we cannot detect it. If, if the dark matter would be so energetic that it would be good, powerful enough to destroy our human tissue, we would have observed it by now, right? The problem is that it doesn't emit, or if it emits any light, it's, it's very weak. That's why we... we um, We've been scratching our heads for about 90 years to detect that matter. Um, now, I don't know enough about the ball lightning and uh, earthy phenomena, but um, what the plasma, whether they emit any radiation or no, I think I would, to, to my mind, I, I would imagine they're very confined phenomena. So, um, and I'm not sure if it would be safe to walk into a, a ball, <laughs> white, uh, in a plasma ball, but uh, if you're uh, a fair distance from it, I would, I would imagine that would be very uh, damaging to, to, to our human tissue. Well, um, ball lightning kills people. Um, there's plenty of occurrence with that. That's why people are so wondering how people can see like this spaceship or they see multiple different things. And a lot of these, from what I talked with Massimo Teodorani, um, he talks, who studies plasma in a sense, and he talks about how you can see different variations of it, depending on which type of plasma that you're looking at. And I just bring it up because I don't necessarily think that it's alien tech. It might be, I don't know. Um, but at the same time, I think it's probably more plausible to go with the idea that it's kind of like a mirage and what we're seeing with this light phenomena um, is probably something like we see with a, 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 just a mirage, a water in a road that's not necessarily there just because it's too hot or something like that. But if we take it to the example of altering cells, whenever – so the amount of questions I ask, they, they might seem sporadic or random or really kind of like different – it's only because the combination of people that I've talked to in specific areas that have given me a certain amount of information or certain amount of ideas where I start trying to plot them together and pinpoint them in a sense. So when we go to the idea of dark matter manipulating cells, the reason why I ask that question is because whenever I ask someone about like, when's the end of the galaxy, whenever Andromeda or Milky Way is going to collide into each other, people say humans are not going to be around. 
And I'm like, well, what idea of humans are we talking about? And the reason why that I say that is if there's a way that you can figure out that dark matter does manipulate cells, I mean, after a long a period of time, I mean, are there ideas of sending a person through a black hole and seeing what happens? Would they just rip apart? Would they just disappear? We wouldn't be able to trace them, right? So then I start wondering if a white hole is the complete opposite of that black hole, what would that do? Would it still just disappear? Would if the... Uh, black hole implodes on itself or causes a person to implode on themselves would a white hole call the person to expand out where i start wondering if there's ideas like if i look up dark matter what would it do to a person people can say hypothetically create superpowers or alter a cells in a person i start wondering when we say that humans won't be around to experience something are we talking about the human forms that we're in right now and I know that gets a little bit crazy, a little bit sci-fi out there, but I start wondering to think that in the next thousand years or 2000 years, we're still going to be at this capacity of this physical form. And we might not just take a different form. I don't know. I know it sounds very Futurama-y, but I mean, you can take it with a simple example, which is the evolutionary changes between generations. Um, my grandfather is not as not like me at all body wise you know the alpha males that smoke a cigarette riding a chopper or something like that that's not today there's a different form of what we would call an alpha male and that's necessarily from the idea of what i would say prosperity even though people can say well there's issues with war and all this stuff going on now Yes, but when it comes to prosperity, I specifically mean on the prospect of resources. And as much as we can complain about a price of gas or something like that, the prosperity for food in most places is better than it was 50, 100 years ago. So the capacity for evolutionary change starts to set in when you don't have to worry about going out and hunting as much, or you don't need to worry about these certain things. Where I start going, if it's a simple ex explanation like that to explain that evolutionary change in just a few generations, what's the thing later down the line when you discover that something can manipulate cells? And then cutting off that question, I'm also going to ask the question, is there a specific point that we've been able to focus out where there was the prime example of the Big Bang? Like when I when I mean that is in the galaxy, like you can notice when a bomb goes off, there's the explosion crater and then everything that gets developed around it. So I start wondering how far are we away from that plot point of where if we do understand where that Big Bang initially had this explosion and then how far from that explosion or that plot point are we? Is it like the sun? We know we're a certain amount of distance from the sun to sustain this form of life, where I start wondering, can you be able to graph from that plot point of the Big Bang, what developed around it? Is there other things closer that are more violent, more radical? Are there things farther away where you start to see the expansion of growth, the materials, the gases in the atmosphere? I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking really out there because I'm like, I'm very interested in the topic. <laughs> yes. Um, so the dark matter, first of all, dark matter, as we, we haven't seen it, but we think there's all around us. So if this dark matter is this, some form of particle some small small particles they should be we should be floating in in the sea of dark matter so as we speak for example we believe there's like trillions and trillions of dark matter particles going through you and me without actually interacting at all 
Okay, now it could be that once in a blue moon, one dark matter particle interacts with with a cell, and is actually that this how this some of a, a, a category of experiments on Earth are are built around that idea that once in a blue moon, a dark matter particle would bump into an atom, and will, for example, either shake the 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 atom a little bit, jiggle a little bit, and then we can actually measure that vibration or you could um, uh, bump out an electron and we could collect the electric current. But for example, you would expect one such interaction once, I don't know, once a year or something, or I don't know exactly the, the rate, but very, very right. And so you, they build this huge uh, barrels filled with like heavy liquid uh, in order to kind of slow down the stack particles and make them interact. Um, and, um, so I don't think there, as far as we know, Dagmar is not able to interact with us and make any changes. And if there, if there is, the, the changes are minute compared with all the other interactions our body uh, uh, suffer with like cosmic rays and light from, for example, if we, you mentioned that what happened in the past, in the beginning, right? Uh, in the past, the universe was much more violent. There was much more star formation. There were many more supernovae going on. Now, we've been very fortunate that we haven't actually been living next to a star that was exploding. If a star would explode as a supernova nearby, the whole civilization would, would die with the, because we cannot, the, the level of radiation would be so high that would not sustain life on Earth, right? So it would wipe out the, the life on Earth. So if, if, for example, if you look at the Milky Way as a big galaxy, there's regions in the, in the Milky Way which have much more star formation, like, for example, in the center of the galaxy. There's also a black hole there. There's lots of uh, energetic events going. So the, more, the closer you get to the center of the Milky Way, the more, uh, there's, there's less likelihood of having planets with life. Uh, it, there's a certain habitable zone, as we call it, around like a ring around the Milky Way, not too close to the center and also not too far away from the center of the Milky Way because you need some star formation to kind of enrich the um, uh, the environment with metals and with chemical elements, the, the organic elements that make, make life. Now, looking back into the early universe, there's lots of supernovae going on. So that the things, um, uh, this lot, if you happen to be a planet on the planet around the very big star, they would blow up as a supernova, then, then again, the life would be extinguished. Now, in terms of our future, now obviously there's evolution going on and we are not at the end of the evolution. Our future um, uh, generations will be quite different from us, most likely. And there's a, we are living at a very interesting intersection where we start to kind of morph with our uh, with machines, uh, we already kind of glued into our phones and uh, laptops and so on. So we can't actually live without them. So you can actually see where where the future generations might go to. It's not clear that it will go that way, but it's a possibility that everything will be much more connected with, with machines. Uh, people also talk about the AI and different um, developments. So it's, it's possible and actually it's quite good and I think um, Avi Loeb, which I know you had on your show, he also advocates sending AI on sp in space. Again, because the, the space is so 
inhospitable to humans, uh, it's much better to send machines. And we already do this with like, the, the whole Mars exploration is with robots, right? And we have lots of uh, rovers on, 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 on the Mars and we send all kinds of machines on the moon and um, all our telescopes, we can call them as, as our extensions of our, of our bodies, right? You don't actually need to go to space. You can just send a telescope and, and observe the universe and or explore a planet so on. Um, so yes, our future generations would, would be possibly very different from us. Um, now, they probably won't, we won't turn into dark matter, <laughs> uh, but we'll probably find a way of kind of, uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to speculate, but uh, dark matter is not very good. We don't actually know what it is, but the, again, the, the dark matter cannot actually form human forms because the, um, uh, the, the, it's, it, it, the, the strength of interaction between dark matter particles is very weak. So our, our bodies are held together by chemical bonds, which are very strong. Now, people also talk about um, a whole dark matter spectrum. So dark matter, instead of being a, a single particle, could be many particles of different, all dark. Right. Uh, as we see, for example, on Earth, we have protons and neutrons and electrons. We have a whole zoo of uh, of particles, right, on Earth. And why do we have so many? And um, we don't actually know, but uh, that's that's what it is. Reality is very diverse in terms of particles that we that uh, that we're made of. And the same could be um, said about dark matter. Dark matter could be a whole spectrum of dark matter particles. And uh, I should mention that since we sometimes we veer into this sci-fi we could also veer into fiction and I, I know there's a, a nice book by philip pullman he and he actually envisaged uh, a form of conscience made of dark matter in one of his books this is actually quite interesting well i i i, I bring up this point where do, is there areas of space where there are no stars and would you say that that's that place is just lacking star formation or would you say that place is just filled with too much dark matter like if you can't see any light like there's just pitch black and you can all you just look like you're floating all by yourself if you were out there then if that's a possibility wouldn't there be a possibility of the opposite as well too i think you see it in cartoons when they just have the cartoon and then it's an all white background I mean, would there be a possibility for that too? And if we look at the spot where there's just nothing but blackness, there's no star formation, is that 100% true? Or is that a factor of maybe that there's so many particles so thick that we just can't see the stars that are going? Like it's like being in a fog. Sometimes you can't see your hand in front of your face if it's really, really thick fog. I mean, is that is that this is that dark matter that's filled up in that black spot yeah, of the galaxy? Dark matter likes to clump uh, because it just feels the force of gravity. So that by itself will just form dark galaxies. We call them dark matter halos, and our galaxy is embedded into this huge dark matter halo. But there are some as you go to smaller and smaller galaxies, some um, some as Hesdek mentioned, dwarf galaxies like, for example, large Magellanic Cloud and small Magellanic Cloud. These are like tiny galaxies, but if you go even smaller than that, uh, then you, in the regime of dwarf galaxies, um, the dwarf galaxies have very little stars and a lot of dark matter. They're actually dark matter dominated. So if you, if you sum up all the matter there is in there, 90% is dark matter and 10% could be stars. And you could, you could also uh, envisage that there's these dark matter halos that, that leave just by themselves with no star formation at all, just because you can't actually uh, 
for some reason or another, you can't actually uh, collect gas into these dark matter halos. Not sure if it answers your question, but we know actually of systems, but these are systems of the, of, on the scale of uh, galaxies, not individual particles, which are made of just of dark matter. Hey, Stick, do you got anything to add? Yes. So if you think about the universe and space, most people think about space as being a vacuum, that there is nothing. But that is actually a common misconception. So you will still find particles out in space. It's not really a vacuum, but the particle density is so low, you can basically think of it as zero. But yes, there are still particles. And thinking about, as you said, some form of radiation or particles that can change our evolution, that is happening around us. A great example is the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. The radiation has caused generations of kids being born and generations after to form some form of cancer. That is your cells misbehaving due to radiation. Yes, we have a lot of radiation here on Earth that can change cells, but thinking about it, the good example I always use with my students, your microwave and your cell phone emit the exact same radiation. The only one thing is the microwave is so intense or the radiation is so intense that you can heat up your food. But with your cell phone, the radiation is at such a low intensity that you can basically leave it out. But in on the, the biology side, they, I know a lot of people have stir up a lot of debates about it, is technology called CRISPR, where you can identify certain genes and you can actually change it. So if you are expecting a baby, at a certain point of the development phase, you can intersect it, you can use CRISPR, and you can actually change DNA on your baby. So then you can actually pick what uh, color of hair should be, what the eye color should be, what a bit of a physical attribute should be. So yes, that technology does exist. And speaking of space, where you're talking about um, are there no stars, uh, are there a lot more stars? Yes, there are certain places where stars are much denser, clumped together. Same with galaxies. Uh, certain places, galaxies are more clumped tied together, other places not. But it all depends on what we're observing. So some region in space, you can look at it through an optical telescope and it will see there's nothing there because there are particles blocking your way that you can't see through it. But if you use a different means, such as a radio telescope, then you look at radio waves, microwaves, X-rays, then you can see through that cloud and see what is behind it. But just to throw a little bit of a spanner in the works, I'd like to share my screen again. Um, can you see my screen? Yes, the Drake equation. Yes, do you know the Drake equation? Nope. That's why I said it out loud. So, Did it make me seem like I knew it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is something I've uh, discussed with my students recently. So the Drake equation determines what are the chances that there are other intelligent civilizations in the universe around us. So this was formed by astronomer um, Dr. Frank Drake. So he was in the Green Bank Observatory in the US. Even if you have a chance to visit the Green Bank Observatory, please do so. It's one of the best science institutes 
in the world. And there's a lounge in the observatory named uh, called the Drake Lounge named after Frank Drake. But this equation predicts how much intelligent life might be in the universe. So we have n, so we want to calculate the variable n. So R is the average star formation rate in a galaxy. So you calculate this per galaxy. So R is how many stars are formed in a galaxy in a certain time, usually a year. Then you have FP from that stars that develop in that galaxy. How many of them have planets orbiting them? And then from that planets orbiting them, those stars, how many of those planets are in the habitable zone? Or I like to call it the Goldilocks zone because it's not too warm, not too cold, it's just right. And then from those planets, which of those planets actually develop life? And then from those planets that has developed life, which of them has developed intelligent life? And then from those in planets that have intelligent life, which of them have the capability to develop a communication system or communicating with us? And then what is the average lifespan of that civilization? So that's taking account, will their star go supernova? Will something happen to them? And then you can get an estimation of how many um, civilizations there are in the galaxy. So thinking about it is, if you look at the worst possible approximation, then we humans are the only life in the universe. But if you look at the optimistic variables you plug in, then there should be 15,600,000 intelligent communicating species in our own galaxy. And that is just something to think about. Well, much like I talked about with a friend of mine who studies impact creators, I mentioned the fact that this earth, this life, everything that we know around us could be probably the worst possible scenario out of the Big Bang. I know that's not necessarily thinking positively, but I mean, in a sense to me, that's a little hopeful to think that there's other possibilities out there. I'm not saying that they exist the same timeline this is, but if you look at like the idea of life forming and we're basing it off the drake equation the way i kind of think of this is that the fact that not only just because andrea's focused in with dark matter and this concept as well either these are not why my questions are being asked my questions are being asked because the idea of what we know about dark matter leaves the possibilities kind of endless in a scenario and where i bring up the point of if dark matter can't affect our cells that are in our body this chemical compound that we have but for how long I mean, if we talk about like if I use the alien experience, for instance, or if I use the, the idea of people seeing more than that, I don't know what that is. But if we're talking about light plasma, there wasn't this many occurrences or reports about it even 50, 100 years ago, where I start being, is this a factor of radiation? Is there just particles that are being trapped into our atmosphere that aren't like we're having solar flares happen a lot. Like it just happened like five, six months ago in Arizona, they were fluctuating of power they couldn't do this so i start going nobody talks about like what two weeks later they're like everything's back to normal hang on a second like what's that there's something there that we're like not maybe the general public doesn't see but there's a scientist that's focused on it where there's no way a hundred percent of what entered in a hundred percent goes out that just doesn't happen get a bottle of water you have to leave it upside down for a couple of days and let every single drop come out when you when you know when you clean it out or something 
that's what I'm saying is this phasing point. If we look at the time scale, like the probability of billions of years, I mean, what's the probability or the idea that in a, a couple of hundred years, the eventual radiation or whatever that our planet consumes, how much of that is leaking out at a rate that it's being consumed in where I start wondering, is it that crazy to think, or maybe mad scientist of me, let me just add white hair and you know, spike it up like Einstein or something. But I mean, the possibility that your chemical compounds or these little bits maybe can't be measured in such an extreme portion, but over time could be something that could eventually interact with dark matter. If we bring up the blue moon scenario where we're able to read one of these weird runoffs from a dark matter particle, that's a random occurrence. What's to say that blue moon experience doesn't become something more normal, like a full moon experience where we're coming across more readings of these types of things. And then I kind of link that in with the alien idea, which is what people are seeing necessarily might not be the idea of aliens. It might just be something that we're experiencing more frequent because of the factor of the time and these small shifts that are happening that we're necessarily not as a human being reading but probably another device could measure it. I mean, that's what's interesting about this whole thing is like even with dark matter, I mean, as much as we do know about it and then compared to what we don't know about it, I mean, the possibilities are endless of scenarios or possibilities that could happen, which to me is just fascinating. I mean, I'm an outside observer. I'm not involved in this looking in on it. So I have these types of questions where to you guys, it might seem like that sounds, no, that's, it's not possible. I, th I think these are good questions that it, one thing to bear in mind is that dark matter has an effect, obviously, but on much larger scale. So won't actually, I don't think that the, it will have an effect on the scales of the earth. But if you think of the scales, even of the solar system might have an effect there. And um, the, the, the main force that the, we, and which we know that the dark matter responds to is the force of gravity. So the, gravity is actually a very weak force. We have four fundamental forces in, in, in the universe. Gravity is one of them. It's much weaker by factors of 40 times weaker than, for example, electromagnetic force, right? So having said that, if you go on a much larger scale, like the scale of the galaxy, for example, there's a lot of dark matter, there's a lot of matter, and the force of gravity becomes dominant. So for, on a scale of a galaxy, is the gravity we worry about, we worry about, not the electromagnetic forces, right? It's the other way around. So that's when we actually have to take dark matter into account. And obviously, as you said, it has a cumulative effect because the dark matter, the force of gravity is only always attractive. So you only add layers and layers of dark matter. Dark matter does not escape. So once it comes into a galaxy, it just kind of piles up and forms a bigger and bigger dark matter halo, as we call it. Now, it, somewhere in between, I, I remember, um, you might find it interesting. There was a, is it actually, um, a, I won't call it a theory, but a, a speculation, um, an interesting idea uh, put forward by Lisa Randall. She actually wrote a book on it and um, kind of connecting evolution, human evolution or evolution on Earth with dark matter. And she, uh, if I remember correctly, was, you know, that the solar system is, is, a, is, a, is flat and right. And then the, the dark matter would, if it piles up at the edge of the, of the solar system there, it might affect the, um, or, or we also, the solar system is embedded into a disk, which is also like the disk of the galaxy could also have a, another disk of dark matter. So you can see a lot of 
uh, inhomogeneous uh, distribution of dark matter around us. In, and she was um, hypothesizing that some of this dark matter could affect the orbits of asteroids. And, um, and one of this, you know, by just kicking, just disturbing a bit the outer edges of the solar system would, would throw in some of these things onto Earth. And this is how they, um, they for example, they uh, affected, the, they, they killed the dinosaurs, right? So the, the root cause, she was saying, was dark matter. Now, I don't think that that idea caught on onto the, onto the wider community, but it was an interesting thing. And it kind of shifted your, shifts your perspective on things. Just kind of take dark matter into account on, on scales that you, you weren't able to think before and um, whether that, that's true or not we don't know but actually it's interesting that the dark matter could affect human evolution in some way maybe in an indirect way and not at the level of cells and as I said at the level of what's happening on on earth right have we ever been able to record on one of these halos where all this dark matter can get composited outside on this halo ring on the inside? What happens if something caused an implosion and caused everything to kind of be sucked in like a black hole would just eventually suck up everything, like every star or whatever you want to say. Would this halo, if you had something implode on itself and then close and be over with, this halo ended up clashing in where all the outside pieces clashed in and would that create something? It, it's just like matter, you know, dark matter is just like matter. On, it's basically, you know, we, we don't actually collapse them into, um, it's, um, you need a very high density of dark matter and we don't know whether the, the, the center of dark matter halos are so high density. Uh, all indications are that there's a certain uh, plateau of the dark matter density at the center. So you'll never get this dark matter singularities or anything. And it can't form black holes from the dark matter uh, with actually, the only black holes that we've seen are made from normal matter. Well, what is there a, a chance of spontaneous black holes or ones that are these just ones we just haven't been able to detect before they occur? So, yes, uh, I lost connection for a moment. So I think one thing you asked that I didn't know if it's been answered, if we talk about uh, the central point of where the Big Bang might occur or how to determine that point. Yeah. Uh, we, haven't talk, talk about we, it. we haven't talked about it yet. Yeah, so that's one thing I made note of that we haven't talked about yet. So the one thing is, if we look, we cannot determine where the Big Bang happens. So if we look in every direction out there, the universe is expanding equally in every direction. So the best way you can think about it is the beginning of the Big Bang is everywhere. So everywhere is the center of the Big Bang where it happened. I mean, coming now to your black hole, how a normal black hole forms with normal matter. So the base or usually is at a black hole forms at the end of the life of a giant star. So we'd like to measure things. So if we say something is one solar mass, that is basically the mass of our sun. So I know in school you have learned that you cannot divide by zero, then your calculator doesn't know what to do. But what actually happens is when a black hole forms, if you have a star that's between 1.3 and 3 solar masses, that means 1.3 the times of our sun and 3 times the mass of our sun, that star will form at the end of life cycle a neutron star. So that means it is compact and very, very, very dense. So 
you have all those weights of the original star, it's in a, compacted in a very small region, and that creates objects such as neutron stars or pulsars. But if you have a star that is above three solar masses, at the end of its life cycle, when it goes supernova, that means its outer layers is blown into space in a big explosion called a supernova. But the core will contract onto one another and implode, which actually happens there if you do the math, that is where you divide by zero. That is called the Chandrasekhar limit, where everything is pushed down together, and that is pushed down into a small singularity, and that becomes the black hole. So you only get a black hole if a star dies or a star that's more than three cell masses, so three times the mass of our sun. And at the end of its life cycle, it will become a black hole. And that is how normal matter will become a, a black hole. And then you also get black holes in the formation of galaxies. The majority of basically all galaxies we observe has some sort of a supermassive black hole in the center that keeps the galaxy together. So as we have our own sun, and you have a planets orbiting around the sun, the sun's gravity keeps everything in check and in place. Uh, we need the same mechanism on a big, bigger scale, such as in a galaxy. So in a galaxy, that central mass is a black hole. And that forms part of a branch of astronomy called active galactic nuclei, or AGNs. And some of these cores or black holes in galaxies may be active, may be pulling in materials. Some may be dormant and not pulling in anything at all. But that is the process how normal matter will form. But uh, Andrea, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in the formation of galaxies, that supermassive black hole that formed in the middle of the galaxy, that has a bit of a different mechanism to it. And if I'm correct, that is where the halo of dark matter comes in. Yeah, yes, you're right. I mean, uh, I think the, the, the supermassive black holes at the center of the galaxies um, they have, they are quite different from the little black holes, little black holes from, from individual stars. Uh, but having said that, they have to grow from a seed, right? So the, it's, it's unclear at the moment um, how this, this supermassive black holes came to be so big. And we also discover them very early on in the universe, like when the universe was very young. So that's another problem. How do you form these gigantic supermassive black holes so early? Uh, and um, rather than having one star collapsing, you could have like a giant gas cloud collapsing and forming that supermassive, just to give it a bit of a kick to, to start the, the process. And obviously the bigger the, the black hole is, the more mass would um, accumulate and would, the faster it would grow in, in time. And as you mentioned, you can grow spur the growth of black holes by just merging galaxies. So the Milky Way has a supermassive black hole in, at the center, Jomina has one, when these two galaxies will merge in, in about four or five billion years from now, the black hole, these two black holes eventually will find each other and will spiral in and um, make a bigger black hole. Um, well, it was what I was mentioning with the halo ring. Now, I don't look at dark matter as a, a, a composite to make material or has the ability to make material. I kind of look at it like an inactive compound, I would say. But what can trigger that can make that thing active? 
And I start wondering if we talk about a star dying and it causing a black hole, are there com- these rings, these dark matter rings around, let's say, a, one of these stars that creates a black hole, causing all these particles to form in, and this halo going from an actual halo compiling into each other would that cause a creation in something would that cause a disturbance in something i don't understand i I, maybe my knowledge on what like are we able to measure these types of explosion or these types of implosions that happen in space when a star dies or when something forms are we able to measure that on any scale yeah i I don't think there's much dark matter i mean dark matter is a lot of it but it's dispersed over so it doesn't have the density for example, in, in, in your room, right? That your, 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 your body is much, much more denser than the, the dark matter is on, on the scale of a, of a room, right? So it's the I've same thing- I've lost five the... pounds. What are you <laughs> The same with the star, right? The star, obviously there's dark matter particles around the star, but they don't actually add much to the, there's not, it doesn't have, there's not enough density around the star to change the composition of the star or any nuclear fusion or processes that happen in the star. It only becomes important when you go on the scale of galaxies and then you have less and less stars and gas, but more and more dark matter. But let me turn things around and uh, uh, ask the question, you know, in the universe, most of the most of the matter is dark matter as i said like 85% is dark matter and 25% is is um or sorry 85% and 15% is normal matter right why would the dark matter care about us normal matter right it's um why would they you know just turn things around right the the most of the universe is dark matter and it's not normal matter we are the exception it's not dark matter is the norm and same with the dark energy. If you go to this dark energy, that is much more dark energy than dark matter, right? So most of the universe is this form of two mysterious forms of either matter or energy, which have nothing to do with us. So I have read a interesting hypothesis. Like you said, we are the exception to that rule. But I've read an interesting hypothesis which said... Uh, you can correct me on this, that dark matter is perhaps normal matter in a different universe that is interacting with our universe the same way if we think about the multiverse. So it's just an interesting hypothesis that I read that dark matter is normal matter in that universe interacting with our universe. We can't talk about the multiverse unless we're going to, because we're going to, we're going to go into a whole topic of me asking about a future self or another possibility of me in there. But you can um a- answer his question, but I wanted to bring up the point you mentioned about um dark matter. Why would it care about us? And I go, well, the same reason water doesn't care about a fish. Eventually, to a point, you fill that whatever base that water is, let's say a pond with too many fish. Maybe the water doesn't necessarily notice, but obviously the environment has changed where I start bringing up the question. Maybe dark matter doesn't care about us because there's not a composite. There's not, there's a lot of empty space that I can, I mean, literal empty space out there. So it's not like we're taking up large portions of it, but I bring up the fact of like small little compounds there is, or something. There's definitely an ecosystem between us and dark matter. I mean, you mentioned that, that, uh, 
that observation about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, that these tiny fluctuations in, in the temperature of the plasma were actually dictated by the amount of dark matter. If there was no dark matter, there would be no seeds of matter density. There would be no, you won't be able to form galaxies or stars or planets or us, right? So in a sense, we are actually the, the a consequence of dark matter. If you have, if you build a universe with no dark matter and just, just baryon, just, just matter that forms me and you, you, there would be no galaxies, right? So we'd actually do all our existence to dark matter in an indirect way, right? Uh, and it could be many other consequences of how we and dark matter are forming this ecosystem in, on, a, on a universe scale. But th these are interesting questions. Yeah, yeah, I haven't actually thought too much about it, but um, uh, how much of this can we actually probe with our instruments? That, that's a different question. And at the moment, we, we're hopeless in detecting dark matter. We, we need new, fresh ideas on how to um, measure this, this dark matter. And dark matter might not even exist. Could be that we don't actually understand the force of gravity and there's, there's no dark matter. So that's a whole different topic, yes. Just from your concept or idea and understanding of dark matter, do you think that there's a possibility that it could have created what this thing is that we call consciousness? I mean, if we are an effect, I've kind of come to grips with that a long time ago that we're effect of something. My, my, my effect, my birth is the effect of my parents having a fun night or something like that. But I'm just saying when it comes to dark matter and the universe creation, us being an effect from possibility, I mean, it, creation of dark matter i just get to the point of like do you think this could be a possibility of this idea of consciousness and how like rapid and misunderstanding a lot of people have i mean if you ask people what consciousness is they can't give you an answer they can give you ideas of what it is but they don't have a definitive conclusion of what consciousness is this imaginative aspect these many parts of our brain that we can diagnose there's this one area where we don't have an explanation for this thing inside of us so i start wondering do you have any idea or do you put in any weight in the fact that maybe there's a large composite of dark matter that essentially could be the creation in our consciousness well uh that's a very deep question i'm not sure if i can answer it there's two big unknowns obviously the dark matter and consciousness it's not clear whether that we can compound the two or they could but you know there's uh, there's an open field of exploration um, and I think these ideas have been explored probably not by scientists but by fiction writers and I, I uh, there's this book uh, I think it's called Dark Animals and there's been also a, a, a TV series about this it's very interesting where all the ideas are explored about dark matter and uh, and consciousness it's Haystick. this book by Philip Pullman. Haystick, you got anything to add before I go to the next question? <laughs> so that's really interesting. So I'm, my mind is just springing back to Star Trek and sci-fi, speaking about dark matter. For some reason, I'm thinking about now in Star Trek where they have antimatter and where they combine dark matter, I don't normal matter and antimatter to create energy for the propulsion systems of the starship. So that's something interesting I thought about, but um, that is also something on a way different sci-fi level. Well, the reason why I mentioned if we're a, we have any tools that can measure a type of maybe, because I, I worry about planetary impacts, but what about the concept of cosmic impacts? I mean, if we have something that happens that is not 
effective of Earth, but something in our solar system or in our galaxy. I start wondering if we have ways to be able to measure what that impact is, that creation is. I mean, we can understand from like what the origins of our planets are or composite of the big bang so that was an impact or that was an explosion that happened and i start wondering it brings into my hidden little uh love for terraforming because i like talking about planetary civilizations and trying to find these ways to space colonize these ideas that were are in the relative future i would say i mean we're already going to other planets and things of that sort to think that we're not going to be able to eventually create a base on or a small little thing you know that maybe that's another topic for an astrobiologist or something but i, I start going if you're able to detect these types of powerful impacts or these types of creations a star formation be able to measure it on even a smaller scale how long until we start trying to find out the details of what that is how many hydrogen atoms how many of this and how many of this cause this to happen where you start having someone try and recreate it on a smaller level in a lab somewhere you're starting to try and create whatever this thing is that essentially afterwards it might not just be an explosion but afterwards you have a creation of something where it brings into the idea of terror terraforming i mean the idea i had talked with um, my buddy who studies impact craters was being able to find one of these asteroids and be able to detect a certain spot to hit one of these planets and make it into an exoplanet now that is a very long leap compared to where we're at now to being able to do that in the future um, depending on if we focus in it or not where i start wondering if they're still sticking around the concept of terraforming because i mean humans we just want to expand we want to go out we want to do things and i i'm i'm 100 percent for it but necessarily i also have a side of me that goes are we ready to leave earth yet i don't know i still don't know how to do taxes properly so i get to this point where if, if we can understand or we're able to measure these types of cosmic in, impacts um on a smaller scale could be replicated in a sense to where you might be able to fix smaller issues um such as you know climate change is a big topic it's very very political i didn't know about until i dived into it but the idea of like i've heard people talk about a the hypothesis or hypotheticals of uh, harvesting stars. I know we're not even close to that yet but i mean these are all obviously in the field of science the best part about it is you can skepticize you can toss out all these theories and everything and it's interesting to learn about i love learning about ideas that people how people's minds work that's why i like you know doing a podcast about it <laughs> so i can jump in i think a little bit with this just think about terraforming and starting to do things on a smaller scale a good example is with nuclear Power. So right now we use nuclear fission reactions. So where we take an atom, you split it into two and energy is released. But in fusion reactors that's been investigated, that's the other way around. That's how a star makes energy. So in a normal star, beginning with star, you have hydrogen atoms. You fuse the hydrogen atoms together, that creates helium. And that releases energy until all the hydrogen atoms is used up. And then you have helium atoms left. Helium atoms get fused, that creates carbon and so forth. But the idea is in a fusion reactor here on Earth, so there are a few designs, uh, not very successful yet, but there are. Is why don't we use the same principle here on Earth? You take atoms, you fuse them together, and you get a lot of energy. And if you would do terraforming in the future, and you would need a power source on the planet to help those terraforming techniques using, 
fusion reactors might be a great way of doing it. And so in theory, we know how to do fusion. In theory, we know if we fuse two hydrogen atoms, we will get a helium atom plus energy. So in theory, we know how to do it. But the problem is we need immense magnetic fields to stabilize that reactions. And that is being tested in labs all across the globe now. Yeah, I, just on the echo what Hystic said, actually, this I think would be the, the future for, um, for solving all kinds of problems, including climate change uh, and you know, future transportation to, to other planets, um, travel and, and so on. Uh, this the, the the rockets that we have now are uh, consume a lot of fuel and they're not very efficient, right? In terms of like uh, uh, transporting people from one planet to another, but with a, a rocket which is fueled by fish fusion rather than uh, normal fuel, then that the, the whole travel would be sped up. Um, and for example, we can. Um, people talk about colonizing Mars, for example, right? That would be that would be um, it would be faster if if the travel would be made with with a with a rocket, which is a, a fission reactor. Now, I think just a few um, few weeks ago, there was some news on uh, about uh, a fusion uh, reactor being able to um, to have these reactions for about four minutes. So. There's been great progress lately on on uh, sustaining these reactions on Earth, and as Haystack was saying, uh, that the complication is to kind of keep that reaction going and also confining it. Right? Obviously, you have to in order to put that in, onto a rocket, you have to make it commercially available and miniaturize it. So you don't have this huge reactor that we have on Earth, but where we speed up all these um, uh, particles to kind of uh, bump into each other. So you just have it confined into into a onto a rocket, and uh, for that you need this very strong electromagnetic magnetic fields to 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 uh, call collimate the plasma. Uh, but I think this is a, these are technical challenges, and maybe in a hundred years from now this would be already figured out. Yes, and yeah. I don't necessarily know if you guys have your work hats on when you're answering my questions, but I'm going to ask you to take it off just for this one. Um, where would you like to see? uh space our space exploration go because i mean i don't i don't toss out avi's um idea of sending our our digital children up there i think that's a great idea honestly i think that's probably the direction where we're headed with maybe that's just the guests i've had on have all been like transhumanists or futurists that i've talked to that have talked about this um digital implementation of technology into our bodies but i also bring up the question a lot of the stuff that we do talk about where I do lean more towards the transhumanism aspect is the idea of human error. I think that we will probably be a lot farther if we did have a capacity, whether it's AI to help us or whether it's whatever to help us get us there. We need a tool much like, um, you know, you need a, a cup and you need water, you know, water needs the cup cup needs the water for you to be able to drink it that's a as a, that's a working relationship right there so i bring up the working relationship with the machines that we create now necessarily are we going to funnel it into things like space exploration i'm sure we will but it's going to be used to something else that's right in front of us as well to some of the interaction autonomous vehicles would be the simplest explanation of where it would be headed towards next i think that's a great idea of using 
I don't know, digital reality or using augmented reality and being able to control a robot that's able to walk the surface of Mars instead of having to worry about terraforming Mars. But I also bring up which direction is a personal question for both of you. Do you think that it would be the our idea of understanding that human sacrifice where necessarily it might not be you that walks that exoplanet or walks that planet or takes that because i know a lot of these like alpha centauri is like certain amount of years away i mean i don't think we're able to just free somebody or bring them that's a whole other direction that we can talk about but um the idea of instead of maybe worrying about sending a human to another planet but sending a human controlled robot to another planet much like the mars rover but in a sense on a big a better scale a more robotic scale a more humanistic featured style robot scale um because i i still bring up the possibility of like i don't necessarily know about humans expanding out i mean this is still the same question you think humans want to expand out into the galaxy and go searching for more i'm sure there's people that would love to do that it's star trek and all that's about that but i also go I don't put it over us to want to change our outer change, whatever the galaxy is to make it more accompanying for us, which brings up the idea of terraforming. Like I was talking about, you know, bringing things closer to us so we don't have to go so far rather than us going far to go explore something where we could colonize or do something of that sort. <clears throat> well, um, you mentioned the, the relationship with machines where they have, uh, a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm actually in, in a harmonious relation with my machines. I, I do computer simulations all day and uh, <laughs> um, uh, VR and um, we apply machine learning techniques and AI. So this already embedded in our research. And as you say, they are a tool, they're useful tools. And some, when we want to simulate the universe, we that's hopeless to do with pen and paper or just with our brains. We have to rely on machines to kind of um, obviously, they're, they're not um, independent machines, you have to kind of code that up uh, at the moment, but in the future with AI, artificial intelligence, there is also the possibility that AI itself would probe different theories and will help us develop just much like AI is, you know, like machine are taking over other people's jobs. They could also take uh, over physicists jobs and come up with a better models of the universe, the things that we haven't actually thought about. But obviously that would be in, in the far future. And if that would help us understand the universe, I, I think that would be uh, a wonderful thing. Now, in terms of machine sending for exploration, I think that's that's well embedded in in the philosophy of human exploration or exploration of the universe, especially the solar system. You mentioned the Mars rover, and it's already you know it has its own individuality. I don't know whether you meant you've seen that the the Mars rover has a Twitter account and it yeah. tweets and it interacts with other rovers and with other machines. So there's already a, this ecosystem of machines out there, which is independent of humans. Now, if we send, if we want to build settlements on on the moon, then we have to send uh, robots there or machines that would be able to build stuff rather than having humans to to service those, like for example, telescopes. Right? Why why would you send so many humans and endanger their lives when you can actually send robots and machines? And there's all there's a big um, um, field of space exploration, which that it's dedicated to AI and robotic exploration. And I think that would be uh, a great help. 
Yes, it is a bit, it's a bit uh, difficult to anticipate what will happen in 100 years from now, but obviously think back where were we 100 years back, uh, where it was just steam, steam you know, the, uh, with the, uh, the um, industrial revolution and so on, and now we're in a diff whole different level with, with the computers and with our civilization, right? So, um, and just a few hundred years back, to now, there's been a huge increase in, in our, um, there was no space exploration 100 years from back, right? So think about what will happen in 100 years from now on. Uh, it's very hard to anticipate uh, where the humans will, uh, how the humans will develop. Well, taking off my working hat and what I like to see, I would like to see us as humanity build up like a Star Trek type civilization. And, you're going to need baby steps to reach that civilization. But I would like to see in the future, instead of saying going to a vacation on a tropical island, going to the Maldives or Hawaii, or decide you're going to do a bit more exotic, you're going to say, I'm going to have vacation on the moon. I'm going to go to vacation on Mars. I'm going to go to vacation to on one of, or on a space station around Jupiter, or perhaps on a on a facility on one of the moons of Jupiter. That is what I would like to see. And what I also think might happen is, um, I'm a fan of Isaac Asimov. And in one of his short stories, he has the stories where there are two doctors and they are working on operating on a person, but not a life-saving procedure. The person is once a few of his limbs and organs removed and replaced by robotic parts. And then the story ends, the two doctors operating are actually two robots that wants to become more human. And the patient I'm working with is a human that wants to become more like a robot. And I see that as a something that might happen in the future as well, that we will use technology to enhance our life and use technology to better the progress of human life as well. And that is what I would like to see happening in the future. But to get to that point, you will need baby steps to reach a space traveling civilization and to have a multi-planet civilization where we will have colonies all around the world. And then yes, speaking about virtual reality, that will become important in the next couple of years. So how cool would it be if you can take the Mars rover and construct the route that it has traveled to a VR and you can walk it with VR where the Mars rovers has been, for example. But yes, that is my opinion and what I'd like to see in my sci-fi worlds in the future. The most important thing I really enjoy about this show is not only the aspect of it being conversation, but also the aspect is I get to see through your experience as well, too, at least the knowledge that you both have consumed through the fields that you work, um, mostly because what I brought up with that question of where do you think it's going to go is I'm trying to base our human trajectory in things, um, especially when it comes to space exploration. And I also look at like when we look at virtual reality, which is a topic I've dived in with a bunch of people who are well respected in the virtual reality field um, and augmented reality as well, too. And there is a large fear for them when it comes to the idea of how it gets marketed. It gets marketed towards more of business. And I also examine that same relationship with a lot of things. I think the most common example that you two could probably understand a little bit, too, is with academia as well, too. 
there's industry funded research that gets funded in academia, which might skew results on research, depending on what you're looking at. And I start going, is it cool to have a space civil or space habit, you know, form dome habitat, whatever you want to say on Mars. But what happens if you can't leave your, your, your pod, your little thing, is that the same thing as being able to explore Mars? Do you just want to say in the direction when we go and say we landed on the Mars and we have a habitat on there? Is it the idea of to say that we have a dome that you can stay at? Or is it the idea that you can explore all of Mars? Now, I know there's baby steps and there's eventualities of where we'll go. I mean, to think that we're going to be living in a dome 100% when we go to another planet that might have low oxygen levels or something like that. Well, I would think they would develop a capsule. You could take it one day and, you know, 24 hour oxygen or something of that sort. So you don't have to worry about putting on a dome or pressure or all these types of things that we'd eventually fix. I give weight to the idea of innovation once we get there. But I also go, I want to make sure that it's headed in best intentions. And I think through me and Hastick's talk, whenever we bring up our colonization on another planet, I've had chats with people who study space law, which I didn't know was a thing. Um, but there's a lot of issues when it comes to this idea of colonization. Whose rights is it to colonize on the moon first? Who owns this? Would it be a United Nations type deal? Would that be the whole world coming together to understand that in space there's different rules than we have on Earth? And I think these are all really good ideas and perspectives because I think it plot points of we might say 50 years, we might say 100 years from now, this is where we're going to be. But with the also, depending on which direction we're going in, I mean, do you want your billionaires like Elon Musk, which I don't have a problem with at all. I like that they're doing stuff, but I also don't want them to be the main frontiers when we look at of like space colonization. I also want to look towards, you know, a more sustainable things rather than if you just have a bunch of money, you can go to Mars and stay there. I want to find ways that there can be this idea of Maybe I'm more research focused, like I would probably like to see more astrobiologists and people who spend all those times in the middle of the desert trying to prepare for staying on Mars in a small little, you know, test facility, whatever you want to say. I'd rather see them go and try and pull out more research and information to make it more, I guess, understanding of us when we go up there rather than just a bunch of people staying in a hotel on Mars. Um but they're all interesting ideas. I think they're all very interesting concepts trying to plot the trajectory of humankind um, and its expansion outward and also its you know, colonization on the planet that we are on here today. I mean, our buildup is fascinating to me. I mean, the past 100 years do not look like today. Uh, the past 200 years do not look like today. And you just keep going farther and farther back. And you can kind of examine that, at least how I bring my eyes forward. I'm not trying to tackle this from a philosophy aspect, but I'm also looking at it as like, you, when you really understand all the information or all the bits and pieces of perspectives, you really get to see the picture a little bit more clearly where I just go, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't even think about this. There's a lot of people out there um, that just want to go to their job and worry about what the price of gas is, which is okay. I'm not yelling at them about it, but it's interesting to see just the trajectory of where we'll be from here on right now. To where we'll be five years from now, 10 years from now, where just a random idea could come in at the last minute mark, like how we are. We are fourth quarter people. We're not good at long problems. We're good at problems that attack us as soon as possible. And then we fix it. And then we go over to the thing. That's why climate change is such a difficult issue. It's, it's, it's a long game is what they're saying. That's why they're trying to push it now, which I get. 
but I also think this is an important part about you know the human experience that we're all in. I don't know what that human experience is going to be 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, but it's just interesting where I just I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I think you raise a lot of uh, good points there. And there is a feeling that um, this is, I mean, there's a lot of talk about space lately um, and exploration. Um, and that also goes hand in hand with the advances on technology and computers and AI. And there's a lot of developments which are, have give you the feeling that everything is going a bit too fast and possibly the, the, the ethical aspects are not very well thought of. People just uh, think about that, innovate first and think about the consequences later. So I think you probably need a lot of people to kind of, especially for these big endeavors, like going to a different planet or even the moon, I think. But I'm also very hopeful. I think, and fortunately, I think all these uh, enterprises are so big that no single individual could be responsible or no single company. <laughs> uh, so I think you have, and also we have different players. We have NASA, ESA, the European Space Agency. We have the Chinese and the, the Russians um, and India is also an emerging uh, space power. And um, again, it is, it's hard to anticipate what will happen in 50 or 100 years from now. But certainly we need better regulations and better, um, we have to kind of change our mindset. We can't just go up into our space and just continue whatever uh, issues we, we had on earth, right? We cannot just transport our earthly problems onto a different planet. Um, there, there has to be a lot of more thinking. So maybe not just the scientists, but everyone else has to be involved, like you know, people who think about ethics and about human conditions and so on, and human development. And let's not forget that the Earth is a, it's a wonderful place. It's our home and it's probably the best planet in, you know, uh, that we can ever find. Uh, we have to take care of it. I think you change somebody's experience or their mindset when you show them what it looks like like all the stars like if you see like someone through a high photo lens of like the milky way and they just take a picture in their backyard we're like this looks fake and trust me i found plenty of them on twitter where i'm like this is fake this is this app um but there are some people that take real photos and actual photos of the sky at night and when you see that and then you look up in your backyard and you take a picture to your iphone and you don't see any of that I think that's something that can really change. Like you need one of those, like what I wouldn't call it a spiritual experience, but you need to see something that's bigger than yourself in a sense as well, too. And I think that has to be the priority of what you're showing to a bunch of people as well, too. That's why I think it's so interesting when Neil deGrasse Tyson or someone comes out and does like a public speaking um, event, just so you can understand through the lens of what that person sees probably on a daily basis basis or thinks about on a daily basis. What's the importance of YouTube joining me on this episode today to be able to talk about this type of stuff? You're taking me in through maybe some hypothetical questions that I have, but you're also, you know, talking to me through it and you're kind of understanding and trying to tackle the concept that I bring up, um, which is important because I think that's the, the whole interest of where it gets started, where it gets sparked up, where that's the idea and mindset you need to be focused on when you're going into space or when you want to get the whole civilization on board. I just think you have a lot of people that are more worried about what they're going to be tweeting at next or what they're going to be watching on Netflix. In a sense, it's like, uh, I think I've brought this up to you before, Haystick, which is um, when I talked to someone about the Younger Dry's impact hypothesis, he gave me this great quote. 
And he said, for the longest time, the astronomers, all they did was look up and the geologists, all they did was look down and none of them talked. And it's like an important thing where it's like, yeah, what happens if they just, you know, talked about things, if they shared information, if they had this back and forth data type discussion or this types of information, one person shares, another person shares, it's a storytelling effect is how societies are built. It's not just from information that's being talked to through friends, it's information that are passed upon generations. Yeah, that is very true. And adding on to Andrea and yourself, we have to take care of Earth. Earth is the only planet we have currently we can live on. Its living conditions is ideal. So we have to take care of Earth. But yes, Looking up in the night sky, it's usually quite astonishing to see. Um, I've seen a few things because I'm quite involved with also public outreach where you try and involve people more in astronomy or science. And you set up a telescope and you point it to Saturn and look in a person's face when they actually see Saturn's rings for the first time with their own eyes through a telescope. That usually changes the person's perspective on the universe. But yes, that is true. And the more knowledge we get and the more we can share knowledge with one another, the better we can improve human life and the better we can enrich ourselves. Would it be easier to terraform one of these nearby existing planets to meet the conditions of us? Or would it be better for us to manipulate ourselves to be able to fit the conditions? Only reason I ask this question is because I think probably like an hour back, uh, we were talking about Mars. And we we're talking about, you know, walking on Mars or, you know, living on Mars, for instance. I bring up the concept of, you remember when Bill Nelson came out and talked about Venus and he talked about just below the atmosphere, atmosphere might be livable conditions. So there's two possibilities of making like a sky city or something like that. And then also, you know, trying to find a way to make like a base that could deal with the water that's there. And I start going like to this concept of like, if we're going to the realm of propulsion systems, hear me out. I'm just saying, is that a possibility to make a sky city? Because that would be interesting. In a future, it might be. Then it would be something like Star Wars. We have Bespin Cloud City. Yeah. Uh, we don't have the technology yet to do it, but that would be quite amazing. But it's quite interesting to see in a future to terraform a planet or to change uh, ourselves but i think it will be perhaps a combination of both to live on different worlds andrea did you have anything yes i think we also have to kind of develop ourselves uh in addition with developing technology i mean obviously we mentioned climate change we, we do have the technology to solve climate change but there's also a lot of psychology issues that are you know intervening into into solving that problem imagine um, if we can't actually solve climate change here now and here uh, how can we actually terraform another planet i think we have to kind of change our mentality and kind of develop ourselves in the process of developing that technology the, I've, I've hit the area of climate change a lot even with i have friends who are climate skeptics and i've people who on the other side who are environmentalists, people who study the earth and will tell you that it is. I think the concept just has to boil past the idea is the planet warming or not, because for some reason that has gotten severely political. And when it comes to that, it's just two sides shouting at each other. So I just bring the topic and I try and change the focus. I'm like, whatever that disagreement is, whatever side you stand on on that one, let's just boil down to the concept of finding an alternative energy source. 
And that's a start. That's kind of a headed into the direct, correct direction. I don't necessarily agree that it's nuclear. I'm sorry. I like, I was a big nuclear guy in the beginning. I was like, ah, oh, nuclear. It says it on energy.gov. Nuclear is the thing. But I bring up the human error aspect. You have those nuclear facilities. The biggest problem that I've talked to with people who study that power source and work in like the United Nations are dealing with these concepts that I've had on the show. They say the biggest thing is that people don't maintenance them they don't regulate them now maybe if we do a prime focus on that then there'll probably be better regulation on those things but we have a lot of them that are 30 years past due and i know people say the chernobyl example is the toss out of like you don't want that to happen again i'm like i'll, I'll leave that one there i just go you got to bring up the human error aspect and i think in a lot of areas this is where i talk about the human trajectory aspect our prime focus and right now in this world, in this society, and I think it's in a lot of cultures, is the idea of making money or progressing in a sense. And I think that progression necessarily has a weird relationship with business. So I think we just got to make sure like what's more sustainable compared to the business aspect of things. I look at like the long haul of society compared to like, you know, the short financial gain where whoever's making the move is just worried about money in a sense. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. So that is something interesting. So, of course, there will be stakeholders funding these sort of things and always want to try and make money of it. But I think there should be a bit of change in the mindset of people. Instead of thinking of how much money you can make of it, change your mindset and think of how can you improve human life? How can you do it in the long run to improve human life, to preserve human life, preserve our world? And as soon as that mindset has taken effect to most people, I think a lot of things will change around us. That's, that's kind of how I see it too. Um, is there any other things you guys wanted to bring up or talk about before we wrap up? We've almost been going two hours, so. Yeah, time flies. No, I think we covered a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, um, I'm not sure if we have the answer for everything, but it, it's uh, always, amazing to kind of think of all the possibilities of exploring space. Yes, I totally agree. This was a fun talking session. I enjoyed talking to everyone, to both of you. I have to get uh, Massimo and a friend of mine, Dr. Serene Nemi, who studies supernova um, on this with us. We'll do a giant panel about it. Um, it's interesting to me because I get to sit and just to be like, oh, God, I get to bask in all the information because I have no clue about any of it. It's all new to me. It's all interesting, too, because especially like, I mean, like I said, when you brought up the multiverse to me in the first place, and I brought it up with Haystick as well, too. I mean, that's an interesting concept. I mean, we obviously don't have evidence on that. Um, but I just think it's just an interesting idea because there's people out there that research that type of stuff. And I think that's that's what I like is that all these theories, what people call theories or ideas or all these hypotheses that are out there. It's just interesting to see what everybody's like wavelength that they're on. You know, it's completely different from what I would be thinking about. I'm worried about like what I'm going to be doing tomorrow or something like that. If I'm going to take my shirt off at the beach. I don't know. Uh, but it's just interesting to me. But I appreciate the time you guys have given me to be able to do this uh, podcast and everything. Andrea, did you want to say? Uh, where people could find your links, any of your writings on your blog or anything, and then also Haystick, if you want to say yours when she gets done. Um, yes, they could find me. I have a Twitter account. Um, they could also find me on LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, and I also have a, a, a professional website uh, connected to my uh, home institution, the Astrophysics Research Institute at Liverpool John Moores University. 
you and you can find me um, on Facebook at Hastic Krubler or Twitter just at Hastic Krubler. And I will link them all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you folks. And I will see everyone on the next episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.